0: bookmark with lee chambers on cambridge 105 radio
1: with heifer's bookshop the great cambridge bookseller since 1876
2: Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. Our featured guest on today's show is Susan Sellers talking about her novel Firebird, a look at the unusual true love story between the economist Maynard Keynes and the Russian ballerina Lydia Lopakova. We'll also hear from Liz Webb talking about her debut novel, a psychological thriller called The Daughter, and Lady Aidy chats about why she set up the online book group The Book Academy. Well, Susan, we'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment. Uh, But first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Thank you very much, Lee. And Firebird, it's subtitled uh, A Bloomsbury Love Story, but there is a Cambridge connection here, isn't there? Very much so through Maynard Keynes and the Bloomsbury Group, in fact.
1: Absolutely, Uh, Maynard Keynes was born in Cambridge, his father was a lecturer at the university, his mother was actually a really interesting figure within Cambridge, she went on to become uh, a council member, a magistrate. He went to school uh, in Cambridge uh, before going on to Eton and then of course went to King's as an undergraduate and came back and was fellow uh, at King's and did a great deal for Cambridge in terms of setting up the arts theatre for instance. And
2: several of the Bloomsbury set also had connections with Cambridge Studied Here.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Virginia Woolf's brothers came to Cambridge. Her husband came to Cambridge. Many of the people that are in Firebird, part of the Bloomsbury group, uh, studied in Cambridge. And of course, Virginia Woolf is famous for writing about Cambridge, particularly not being allowed on the grass or into the library, because at that time, women weren't allowed into the university buildings
2: what about you Susan what's your connection with Cambridge?
1: So I live near Cambridge and I'm a a member of Robinson College in Cambridge and I've been here for let me think 22 years.
2: And we're going to hear your first choice of music in just a moment is music
1: important to you? Music is very important to me. I don't listen to music while I write. I know some people do. For me, it's very important in terms of switching my mind off and going somewhere else. I love the fact that in Cambridge, there are so many concerts to go to. On Saturday night, I thought it would be nice to go and hear some music. There were 10 concerts going on in Cambridge. We are so lucky living here. And this first
2: piece of music, it's from Firebird by Igor Stravinsky, perhaps an obvious connection given the the name of the novel, but you've chosen
1: this particular section, Infernal Dance, why? I think it gives a sense of the extraordinary experimentation and modernity of the Russian ballet that Lydia Lopakova was involved in. I mean, it's so daring, it's so avant-garde. And this Firebird was composed in 1910, which is the year that Lydia Lopakova left Russia for Europe with Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe, and in fact she never went back. Stravinsky was also her lover, and that comes into the novel, and The story of the firebird became really important, the sort of resonances with what happened when Lydia burst like a firebird into Bloomsbury and the ructions she caused there. It also very much helped me think about a way that I might structure the stories that I wanted to tell. And we might come back and talk about that in a moment. But this is a particularly dramatic moment, which I like to think of. Lydia dancing
2: and that was Infernal Dance from Firebird by Igor Stravinsky the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest Susan Sellers. Susan is Professor of English and Related Literature at the University of St Andrews. She won the Canongate Prize for short story writing and her first novel Vanessa and Virginia has been translated into 16 languages and was adapted for the stage. Her second novel, given the choice about women in the contemporary art world, was published in 2013. Her third novel, Firebird, subtitled A Bloomsbury Love Story, came out in May and has already been translated into French with a German translation on the way. As obviously we're going to talk about uh, Firebird, but I mentioned v- Vanessa and Virginia there, the Vanessa and Virginia being Vanessa Bell and Virginia Woolf the artist and the writer who were sisters so you have written about the Bloomsbury group before and now you're back with them what is it about that particular group of people that intrigues you?
1: Partly it's a professional interest because I one of my uh, academic projects is that I uh, am a general editor of Virginia Woolf's writing for Cambridge University Press so I'm sort of been in that world professionally and that really fed into the writing of Vanessa and Virginia because I I suppose for me fiction is a way of delving into things that the historical record can't tell us and I became fascinated by the relationship between the sisters but I wanted to kind of probe and explore in the gaps of what of what we actually know And with Firebird, it was the realisation that in 1922, this extraordinary woman, this world-famous Russian dancer, I mean, she was so famous that people would stop in the streets of London to ask for her autograph. She had danced all around the world by the stage. The realisation that she moved into, uh, in fact, into Vanessa Bell's rooms in Bloomsbury, and yet I knew very little about her really and so I wanted to find out more and the more I found out the more fascinated I became.
2: And for people who don't know the Bloomsbury group I'm sure most listeners do but for those who don't I mean how would you describe them they're sort of like a a literary rat pack almost.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So it revolves around figures like Virginia Woolf and her sister Vanessa Bell, the painter Duncan Grant, Maynard Keynes, The Economist. Most of whom had met in Cambridge. Not all of them, but most of them had met in Cambridge, and it began as a kind of it began as a kind of discussion group. So chiming with the Book Academy, I guess that we're going to hear a little bit about in in the interview. It was an opportunity to get together and talk about important things. They lived together. They shared the same sorts of ideals. They believed in friendship. They believed in pacifism. They believed in the individual's right to love whoever you chose, which at the time. Was very um, very revolutionary. So they shared a lot of things in common, and of course, there were a lot of artists, writers, painters involved in the group as well, and very complex relationships
2: between them, between um, the men and the women, and the men and the men who <laughs> was uh, which went down through the generations, really.
1: And absolutely, they really did believe that you should love whosoever you chose, whensoever you chose, and sometimes, and that's one of the things I explored in Vanessa and Virginia, at great personal cost to the person who might have suffered as a result of certain Choices and what may have been perceived as infidelities. So, yes, um, but as you say, uh, very free in terms of their relationships with each other, but also fiercely loyal to each other so that they were there for each other when something happened. But as with any big group, a kind of extended family, tensions, rivalries, all of those things come into play and we do see a little bit of that when Lydia arrives in their midst. the kind of divisions that that causes.
2: Because Maynard Kane's not perhaps an obvious member of that group on paper quite different to the rest.
1: He was absolutely at their core uh, John Maynard Keynes but you're right he was he was different in the sense that he himself wasn't an artistic figure and I think we often forget the intellectual side of Bloomsbury. Virginia Woolf thought him one of the outstanding intellectuals of his day and indeed she was horrified at the idea that he might marry this Russian ballad ballerina she wrote in a letter that she thought if he did it would be a fatal irreparable mistake so she was very against that uh, prospect
2: yes they didn't like her did they
1: they I think were alarmed when they realized just how serious the affair was I think they were surprised After all, up until the point that I'm writing about, 1921, 1922, Maynard Keynes is almost 40. And up until that point, the only love relationships he'd had were with men. So I think there was a surprise that he had fallen in love with Lydia, but also a tremendous surprise that this extraordinary intellect should fall in love with a dancer who was funny and irreverent but certainly not a great thinker and I think Virginia Woolf really worried that it might damage all that Maynard might have gone on to achieve if he had been free to do so. I think she thought that Lydia would somehow hamper him whereas in fact wonderfully, perhaps bizarrely, it turned out to be the happiest of marriages and extremely enduring. It only ended when Maynard Keynes died prematurely in 1946. So it wasn't at all as they had predicted. And they were quite a famous couple in their day, not quite the posh and becks of the day, but they certainly grabbed headlines. They absolutely did. Lydia, herself was already as I said world famous you know she was constantly being photographed for publications like Vogue and of course Maynard Keynes was this hugely important and distinguished figure um, when they got married they got married in 1925 you know they they had the paparazzi uh, there ready to photograph them. And when
2: you're writing about real people Susan a uh, I mean, I'll ask you about the research uh, later on, but how does it feel in terms of putting words into the mouths of, of real life figures, making them do and say certain things?
1: In terms of the words, for me, it is an enormous amount of reading, and particularly, uh, not in the case of Keynes, not so much his books, but the letters for both Maynard Keynes and for Lydia it was really reading and rereading and rereading their letters until the point that I began to feel I knew what their voices sounded like and what they might have said in response to a given situation. I have to say, though, Lee, I found getting the voice of Lydia right really difficult, partly because she as far as we can tell, always retained her strong Russian accent. So that was quite difficult to write. But more, she had this wonderful sense of play with the English language. So her her native tongue was Russian, and then she'd learned French. And then later on in America, worked on her English, but she had this incredible sense of play with English. Sometimes it was quite scandalous and scurrilous. And there are moments in the book where I've tried to convey that but also moments where it was almost poetry. At one point she describes this walk on the Sussex Downs and she's trying to find a way of talking about the exhilaration of being out in the open air and the views and how wonderful it is and she says It's like having a cocktail with God. I mean, it's just wonderful. E.M. Forster, another member of the Bloomsbury Group, the novelist E.M. Forster, thought she was a natural poet and that her every word should be recorded. So I felt with her a particular responsibility to try to convey something of that to the reader. Does she pop up in the work of the other members of the
2: group? Does she feature in Virginia's novels? Does uh, she appear in Vanessa's paintings?
1: She does. Virginia Woolf, immediately after she moves in, is working on books like Mrs. Dalloway. There's a character in Mrs. Dalloway called Retsia, who is absolutely modelled on Lydia. A little bit later on in the 1920s, in Virginia Woolf's novel Orlando, there is a skating Russian princess Lydia was a superb speed skater, apparently, because every winter in St. Petersburg, as she was growing up, the river would freeze over and everybody would skate. And she apparently was an absolutely superb speed skater. So she's definitely in those books. She's in a lot of the paintings too. So she did have an impact on the art of the group.
2: Thank you, Susan. We'll come back to you in just a moment. Let's talk about another novel now. Let's hear from Liz Webb. Liz has worked as a stand-up comedian, script editor and radio drama producer. The Daughter is her debut novel and came out in May. The Sunday Times called it a breathless, exciting debut and named it as one of the best new crime books of the year. Sophie Hannah described it as a must-read and the Daily Mail called it beautifully observed, darkly funny and surprisingly tender.
3: When I spoke to Liz, I asked her what the novel is about. So The Daughter is my uh, debut novel, and it's about a woman who has returned home to live with her dad who has dementia in her old family house. And she's 37, which is the same age as her mum was when she was murdered in the woods outside. And she's lost a lot of weight, she's grown out her hair, and for the first time in her life, at exactly the same age her mother was murdered, she resembles her mother, she's the spitting image. And because her dad's got dementia, he starts mixing them up and starts saying sorry to her. So she starts to have the horrible feeling that perhaps her dad killed her mum, which she'd always refused to believe. brother had always said that he possibly had and they are completely estranged so the book starts with her being in the house the dad talking to her as if she's the mum and she gradually starts to even dress up as her mum so that her dad will talk to her more and other people who knew her mum will talk to her more it's psychological crime but with a tinge of real life horror and you're dealing with subjects like dementia so
2: that's quite a sensitive
3: subject It is. And um, I was actually writing it at the time when uh, one of my relations was in hospital with very bad dementia. So I am writing from enormous personal experience and I'm not trivializing it at all. I would say that dementia is a terrible thing. It is also can be weirdly not funny, but just bizarre. It is so bizarre when someone can remember the past really clearly, but the present, literally, they can have a goldfish mind and not pick anything up that you've said five minutes ago, which is so bizarre, which is actually how the book starts. She has the same conversation four times within the space of seconds.
2: The strap line of the book is families can be murder, which obviously uh, you know relates to the murder story. But it also, I think we can
3: all <laughs> identify with that line as well. <laughs> Absolutely. And actually, that was one of the other themes in the book because I haven't fallen out with anyone in my family but I've fallen out with close friends but I've also spoken to other people who have fallen out with very close family members in middle age and it is shocking especially around old age and wills and death that families can absolutely fall apart and people you've grown up with brothers and sisters cannot speak it's surprisingly common thing so I thought that was a quite interesting theme also the idea of Brothers and sisters or family members remembering the past differently, which I think is also quite common. You think your memory is linear and exact, but actually people can have completely different ideas of what really happened. And your
2: previous careers, you've been a a stand up comedian, you've been a radio producer, sort of not that different, I suppose, to writing (laughs)
3: because you're about it's about observing and storytelling. Absolutely, all of them storytelling. I mean, stand up is sort of telling shocking stories producing is telling other people's stories and then writing is a sort of mixture other people's stories with a bit of yourself in it they're all very different things I think I did stand up when I was a lot younger I did it for about 10 years and I was a much bigger show-off then I mean absolutely desperate for love and attention then I became a producer when I uh, became a bit more calm but I found that when I was producing I really wanted to rewrite people's work. And I I had to stop myself, obviously, because you're meant to produce other people's work. But I realised I really did have to push myself and try and write a novel. And I started it when COVID hit because there was no producing work at all. So I thought it was now or never. And it's a funny novel. It it is. Yeah, writing comedy. How is that? Because you're sitting on your own at a a PC. How do you know if it's funny? Well, that's the hundred dollar question. Also, it's funny because, I mean, I knew I'd written humor into the book, but I didn't think it was a funny, funny novel. But I realized that my internal monologue and the way I deal with things that are even serious things is to be sarcastic, to find jokes, to find slanted ways of looking at things. And I find a lot of the books I most like are like that, like even Gonga, which you'd say is a straight psychological crime, has a lot of dark humor in it or dark places. That's another of um, Gillian Flynn's books things aren't either funny or not funny they can be serious and slanted and quirky and I'm hoping that's what the book is
2: and this is your debut novel how are you finding that being a debut novelist
3: It's a big learning curve. Oh, my lordy. I didn't realize how much you had to do. Not only you have to write the book, you have to get an agent, you have to get a publisher. Then I was encouraged that I should join. I already was on Facebook and Twitter, but then TikTok. Oh, my God. My son thinks that's hilarious that I'm on TikTok (laughs) and making videos. (laughs) And Instagram, joining lots of groups on Facebook, publicizing and stuff, doing interviews. and Because it's been so long since I performed. I was actually quite nervous doing this interview. I actually wrote myself... A note which says, speak slower, <laughs> don't swear, it's no big deal, no one really cares. I was so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's yeah. a
2: guide for life that, isn't it? You've Absolutely, got right. Absolutely,
3: yes. I might stick that up on the wall. Uh, yeah, so um, doing a debut novel is very exciting. There's an awful lot to learn. You think you just write a novel, but there's so much to learn about the book industry, about how it works. One of the things that was said about my main character was she was quite a Marmite character, likeable or dislikeable. And that never occurred to me when I was writing it, because partly a lot of the character is me. And I thought well, she's totally likeable. She's me. <laughs> but um, I've learned a spectacular amount. I'm in the middle of writing my second novel at the moment. And I have to say, yes, it's been a massive learning curve. But terribly exciting it's really nice to learn a whole new career and i loved your press
2: release i have to say i'm particularly <laughs> uh, i was particularly drawn to the description of your cat as a serial killer
3: oh my lord my cat kills everything and anything we frequently come downstairs and there are black feathers everywhere and streaks of blood it's like a horror film <laughs> he's an absolute killer but a lovely cat too the right environment
2: to be writing this kind of novel absolutely
3: yes i wrote psychological crime because One, that's the main thing I read. But also, while I really like strong voices and good observations, the thing I really like is a strong plot that pulls you along and unexpected twists and turns. And psychological crime is the perfect genre for that. So what's next for you then? You say you're writing a second novel. I am. I'm writing a second novel that is called The Saved at the moment, which I don't want to say too much about, but it's about a weird medical condition where you can be dead, a real thing, and then come back about six hours later. And it's about someone who that happens to her husband, and everyone says her husband is the same, but she says, nope, something's changed, something's wrong. And it's so it's psychological crime again. And you're past as a radio
2: drama producer. Are you any plans to turn any of these into radio dramas? I don't
3: know that would be lovely I I think I might actually I was thinking today who shall I you you get into this ridiculous self-promotion thing when you write a first novel and I was thinking who do I know in the industry that'd be useful and I did actually put a few of my old comrades from uh, radio drama on my list and I thought well I'll send them a copy and see but yes obviously I mean well you don't make a lot of money from doing radio but you make a lot of money if you get your books dramatized.
2: And The Daughter by Liz Webb is published by Alison and Busby. We're talking on Bookmark today to Susan Sellers about her novel, Firebird, which explores the true love story between Maynard Keynes and Lydia Lopakova. Susan, it's structured in three parts, really, the novel. Uh, The first and last have an omniscient narrator. And the second part is Lydia's past told from her point of view, first person. Why did you decide to structure it like that?
1: I really wanted to tell Lydia Lopakova's story up to the point in 1921 when she starts to fall in love with Maynard Keynes and then On top of that, I really wanted to explore what happened to Bloomsbury when she moved in 1921 and the affair with Maynard Keynes turned into something very serious and indeed a marriage, a lifetime partnership and marriage. And for ages, I couldn't see how to kind of fit those two stories together. I didn't just want to do a bit in the 1920s with a bit of backstory. It felt awkward. And it didn't seem to work. And it was really the firebird, the idea of the firebird ballet that started to give me an answer because I thought in dance, in music, you often have sections where there are different dances, different instruments, it might be set in a different tempo, there might be a different mood, different emotions. And I thought, what about if I actually did something like that? And so the middle act, if you like, of Firebird is Lydia's story told in the first person. And it's much more impressionistic and vivid and immediate than the other two parts of the book, which, as you say, are told from uh, the point of view of an an omniscient narrator. And it seemed to me to do the best justice to those two different kinds of stories. And I hope it works for the reader. I do like the fact, too, we were talking a moment ago about Lydia's voice. I do like the, the, the fact that in the middle act, you get her voice the voice of her head directly so it isn't through a kind of accented English it's absolutely hopefully Lydia Lopakova's voice much more directly.
2: And we learn all about uh, the uh, ballet and how really experimental she was you must have had to do a Quite a lot of research on ballet or is this something you already know about?
1: I knew almost nothing about dance or ballet before I began writing and of course I did an enormous amount of reading but reading only takes you so far in with dance. I, I, I read about all the, the history of all the different dance productions she was involved in and I read about her dance partners and the different composers she worked with and all of that. But of course, that doesn't do what you need to do as a novelist, which is try to convey what it feels like to be a dancer. So for that, I talked to dancers a great deal. And I watched a lot of dance video, particularly of dance rehearsals. I was a at how demanding and grueling the dance rehearsals are. And I do have to say that at one point I did take a few beginner's dance lessons. I was incredibly bad at it and it gave me a huge heightened sense of appreciation for what Lydia had uh, managed to do, particularly learning dance steps. She had a phenomenal capacity to learn parts very, very, very quickly. And she was really out there.
2: Some of the productions that she was involved with were very challenging for an audience.
1: Absolutely. And one of the the, the, the productions I do talk about is Parade, which is in 1917. So during the war, it's in Paris, only a few miles from the fighting front. And it's a piece that, you know, it's the surrealist Jean Cocteau who is involved in it. All the sets and designs are by Picasso, Stravinsky. Uh, The music is by Sarti in this case, but it also, uh, the music score involves things like air raid sirens and the sound of typewriter keys and the production calls an absolute riot. So as you say, she was very much part of the artistic avant-garde. And you mentioned
2: 1917 there. And in fact, the period that the book covers, very much political crunch
1: point time in Europe and in Russia. Absolutely. And again, that was another bit of the research. You know, you you think that when you're writing a book about real people, you need to research their lives, which you do. But you also need to know an enormous amount about things like the politics of the period, the history of the period, the geography of St. Petersburg, all those other things you know, and details too. For example, would a very poor family like Lydia Lopukov's family, would they have had running water in their apartment? It was just a two room apartment. What were ballet shoes? At the Imperial Ballet School in the early 1900s like they were very different to ballet shoes today so all those extra details.
2: And and partly because Lydia doesn't know whether she's ever going to see her family again she fears for them.
1: Of course she becomes an emigre and one of the things that I found really moving in her story is this story of her exile. Once she leaves Russia in 1910, she comes just for the summer. Uh, Every summer, the Tsar goes from his winter palace to his summer residence, and he only takes some dancers with him, which freed dancers like Lydia to go on a summer tour with Sergei Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe, and she's supposed to go back but at the end of that summer she's lured to uh, New York by a producer who says come with me I will make you fabulously rich and a star which in many ways he does except not always quite in the way she had anticipated because although she is dancing in these extraordinary productions with companies like the Ballet Russe whenever she can, she's also in vaudeville. She's appearing alongside acts like sword swallowers and flamethrowers and performing poodles. And in America, there's not really much idea of classical ballet at this period. So her toe dancing as it's referred to, they think it's some kind of trick. And Lydia Lopakova, as a dancer, seemed to have had an amazing ability to jump high. In fact, she used to boast that she was was superior even to Nijinsky, whom she partnered because her landings were better, but she had these extraordinary high leaps. But audiences assumed she must be wearing wires under her costume. Well, we'll hear your second choice
2: of music now, which is Woodlark from Catalogue d'Oiseau by Messiaen. Why this
1: one? So this is a lockdown piece because obviously we've all been through this very, very, very strange and difficult period of lockdown, during which my partner and I were both teaching online at home. He was teaching a course on Messiaen. And when he did, I would hear these incredible snatches of music coming through the wall into the study where I was working. And we also spent a lot of time, we were lucky enough in lockdown to have a small garden, and we spent an awful lot of time in our garden. And I think really started to listen to birdsong. And Messiaen was blown away by the sheer exuberance and inventiveness and often great complexity of bird song and he wrote a whole series of pieces that were inspired by birds and in this one which is the woodlark at night you can really hear the night in the dark chords and then the woodlark bursting in on it so for me those two things are about a kind of lockdown experience This is an urgent appeal from the disasters emergency committee Hundreds of thousands of people have fled their homes to escape conflict in Ukraine, leaving jobs, belongings and loved ones behind. To donate online, search DEC or text RADIO to 70150 to give £10. Thank you.
0: Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio.
1: With Heffers Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876.
3: Than books.
2: And we're talking on Bookmark today to Susan Sellers about her novel Firebird, a Bloomsbury love story about the relationship between the economist Maynard Keynes and the ballerina Lydia Lopakova. Uh, Susan, we've talked about the Bloomsbury set, uh, um, Maynard Keynes and Lydia in particular, Would you've liked them, do you think, is my question. If you'd walked into a room and they'd have been there, how do you think they would have presented to people who were not in that set?
1: I think I was surprised by the level of animosity that they experienced towards Lydia when she arrived. And I was really taken aback by that because it was quite, sharp and they were quite nasty to her and about her. But then I really began to think more and I think this is one of the things about writing fiction. You know we were talking at the beginning of the program about this and I think one of the things that fiction can do when you're working on a scene it can give you insights that you hadn't realized before. For example, at one point I was, so Vanessa Bell, Virginia Woolf's sister, whose rooms Lydia moves into, she is very hostile. And I was working on a scene where I was imagining Vanessa Bell working on a painting and I was thinking here's a woman who didn't have enough time for her painting, who wasn't at this stage successful, indeed she was struggling to try to produce enough work for a small exhibition, she had many demands on her including those of her children, here she is, she's finally cleared some space in order to work, she's beginning to paint probably Finding it quite difficult because all those other tensions and stresses don't dissipate immediately. Then perhaps she's beginning to get back into the piece she's working on. And suddenly Lydia, this Russian who has moved into her home, bursts in on her, sits herself down next to her, and starts chattering away 19 to the dozen about anything and nothing. Because Lydia's way of trying to make friends was to do just that, was to burst in and chatter and create noise. And and I was thinking, do you know, I have some sympathy for Vanessa Bell in that context. I think I would have found that quite irritating. So I hope in the book I've tried to be balanced towards everybody. What would they have made of me if I had walked into their midst I would be quite scared by that. I think particularly Virginia Woolf, one of the things we know about her is she was a formidable intellect and intelligence. And I dread to think what the diary entry about me would have been like.
2: (laughs) Do you think it was partly that they didn't understand ballet, as it were? They never seemed to appreciate it as an art form. So therefore they never appreciated Lydia and her skill.
1: It's a really interesting question. There is a moment where Lydia Lopakova says something like, Vanessa Bell thinks of a dancer like a colour in a painting. And she feels exasperated by this because she feels that a dancer is more than just a single colour. So I think there was some tension there. But what's also interesting is that we know that Virginia Woolf did go to the the ballet and did find interesting things in it even if at times she worried that it was a little bit of a kind of cornucopia of too many senses uh in play all at once but she was interested in the ballet so there's a kind of interesting tension there Thank you, Susan. We'll
2: come back to you in just a moment. Uh, let's take a sidestep now, though, and hear about a book group, a book group with a difference, run by Lady ad. Lady is a publisher, author and motivational speaker. She founded and runs the Book Academy, an online book group. And when I spoke to her, I asked her to tell me more.
0: The Book Academy, or I like to call it a book club on steroids. I've been in many, many book clubs but they never actually met my needs. I wanted to be able to talk about my own books. I wanted to meet other authors and have interviews, as well as having a really good book that would inform my writing. So like Tony Morrison has said, you know, if there's something that's not working, then maybe you're the one that should do something about it. So I set up the Book Academy which meets regularly once a month on zoom so it's open to anyone and we do have people from usa come to it as well and we have a great time talking books
2: and how does it work do people choose a book do you choose the book and how does the discussion work because discussions on zoom can be difficult can't they when you've got a lot of people in the zoom room
0: That's right, because we have about 20 members currently, we will go into breakout rooms and talk about the book. We will have chosen it either by something that's come across my desk or if I know I can get the author into interview. So Andy Bound's book about Top Dog, I've got an interview set up with him. So we'll be looking at his book next month. And then members will give their say, well, these are books that they've enjoyed, but really from a perspective of what can we learn from the writing.
2: Do you always have the author there or is it an interview with them?
0: Not always. Sometimes the interview comes later, sometimes not at all, but where we can. So when we did 84 Charing Cross Road, of course, Helena Hanth left us now, but Angela Scott is writing a biography of her and she has a Facebook group of fans of Helena Hunt. So we interviewed her. So anyway, that has the link to the book. And I don't know if I can say, but if there's any listener out there who's got a connection with Mark Forsyth, who did the Horologicon and is a bestseller and he talks about books and words and what the words mean yeah it'd be great to interview him just to get his um, titles of his books wrong <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I really am trying to get a hold of him and I can't find a way yet so okay. I chase down any way I can because just for the whole members to be able to put questions to an author it gives a different look to that book. Does it
2: limit the discussion though if you've got the author there what if people have read the book and not liked it?
0: We've got two hours, so people are generally polite if they can find a question, even if they didn't like it. We had one, the Alginum book, and it was mixed, whether we liked it or not, by Daniel Keyes, mainly because it produced emotions in the reader. And that's when you have difference of opinion. But I actually find that very healthy, that a book has brought an emotive reaction. It really says a lot about the writing itself. And then it's saying, well, when we do our own writing, whether that's content writing for blogs or content writing for any kind of work preparation report, or indeed for a novel or a piece of nonfiction writing, whatever it is, we learn so much more by reading other people's works.
2: And there is something about being in a book group and hearing other people's opinions that makes you sometimes see a book differently and think, oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't see that. Wow, that's there. I now can think about it in a different way altogether.
0: That's right. In the same way, when I say book, I mean paperback, e-book, audio book. And we have some members who prefer to listen and have the audible books instead. And their perspectives are often very different to those of Reddit. I've got to explore that more because I'm quite fascinating as to why that is and what are they hearing through that sense that we're not picking up through reading.
2: And different people, different tastes. So you'll have within your group maybe some people who are real crime aficionados, some people who love fantasy. How do you get a range of books that just suit all those different tastes?
0: By them putting forward which books they think the group should read, And then that goes into one of our book jars and we pull those out periodically. But I did a a survey to find out what members wanted to read because I thought it would be a lot of nonfiction. And they actually came back and said they wanted fiction as well as the business books, as well as the nonfiction side of things.
2: And do you have a favourite book that you've read through the Book Academy?
0: Well, we began it in January. So you know we've only had three books, but I think... What's coming out is our latest book, which is Portable Magic by Emma Smith. And it is nonfiction, but it's all about the history of the book and their readers. It's not looking at words in the book. It's actually looking at the form of a book and how you hold it, how emotive it is. And, and, you know, when you take shelfies and the first person to do a shelfie, as in a picture of a bookshelf, went way, way back where somebody drew the books and things in an artistic portrait of somebody in the 18th century. And i would never thought of that before. So we think we're we're inventing new stuff, but actually it was not called that, but it was around a lot longer.
2: And this just seemed like the perfect answer to some people who do get frustrated by book groups where people maybe talk about the book for 10 minutes and then chatter the rest of the time. And that, that's fine. That serves a different function. But for people who really want to focus on a book, this is for them.
0: It is. And we also have a networking aspect to it. The people we are attracting are avid readers, authors, creatives. So people who want to meet up with other authors, we theme it around the book. But there's that network aspect because every meeting we have, I record it. And then the members get access to the recordings and we have fun. We have word of the month. We have um, one of our members takes a video of herself enacting a scene from a book and we have to guess what that is. I will do guess the opening line of a book. So there's lots of other aspects to it, but all to do with the books and the book world. The two hours just fly past so much. So the social chit-chat is kept to a minimum because we are all focusing on the book. And then any follow-ups come up after the meeting.
2: So if people are listening to this and they want to get involved, what what should they do?
0: Contact me via my website, ladyad.com. Lady has an E in it. So it's L-A-D-E-Y, then A-D-E-Y. And then you can come as a guest to try out for a whole fiver. Um, because it is a paid membership, which also really means that you want your money's worth. So you make sure when you turn up to you read the book or part of the book, because we've said to people, you know, in a month, sometimes people who are, have got very busy business lives and professional lives, they haven't got the time to read the whole book cover to cover because it might take a while to get it from the library or it might take a, a time for it to get from a bookshop. So we will say, particularly nonfiction, if you just read one chapter, that's the one chapter that you put the input and the discussion about.
2: It does sound great because you can just sit at home with a glass of wine. You don't have to worry about going out in the cold
0: or (laughs) getting dressed up. That's it entirely. And because I'm a publisher and author, I just love the world of books. And any time to discuss a book at any level, I'm like, yes, let's do this. And you can find out more
2: about the Book Academy, as Lady said, at ladyad.com. You can contact her there. We've been speaking on Bookmark today to Susan Sellers about her novel Firebird, a Bloomsbury love story, which is published by EER Fiction. Susan, what's next for you? Are you staying with the Bloomsbury group? Have you got them out of your system yet or
1: are you moving on? I think I have actually I, I am in the foothills of a new project and all I will say about it is that it does feature another very brilliant woman but it's a different location and a slightly different period and as far as I know no connections to room.
2: <laughs> and a question we ask all our featured guests on Bookmark what are you reading at the moment?
1: I'm actually rereading Maggie Hum's novel Talent House, in which she takes the character of Lily Briscoe out of Virginia Woolf's novel to the lighthouse and gives us Lily Briscoe's backstory, which is absolutely fascinating because she's exploring women during the First World War, women painters, women's suffrage, And she also, in this novel, explores why it is that another of the central characters, Mrs. Ramsey, dies so suddenly. Um, It's really fascinating and it's also an absolute joy to read.
2: Thank you, Susan. We'll come back to you in just a moment for your last choice of music. But a heads up that our next show, our featured guest, is Menavan Prague talking about her fantasy novel, Knights of Demons and Saints. We'll also hear from Kate Rhodes on her latest crime novel, Devil's Table, and Graham Bartlett will be chatting about his debut crime novel, Bad for Good. But we'll sign out, Susan, with your last choice of music now, which is You Are the Sunshine of My Life by Stevie Wonder, a bit different to your other two choices. Why this one?
1: This is another lockdown piece like so many people confined to home, working from home, living from home, not really able to go out during during lockdown. We found that the days and the weeks started to blur into each other. And so we started to make Friday and Saturday evening a time when we would put on and listen to some music, have a glass of wine, cook Something nice to eat, and increasingly we found ourselves choosing quite upbeat music, I think, as a kind of counterbalance to all the very difficult things that were going on. And this one was one of our absolute favorites.
3: You are the sunshine.